Hi, I'm Kev Jackson. Thank you for joining me today on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors is sponsored by DS Beverages, Paul Bunyan Country's distributor of Anheuser-Busch Beverages, and by Bonnet Lock and Key, Paul Bunyan Country's home for Liberty Safes, as well as Northern Surplus in downtown Bemidji. Today, one of our regulars join us, but it is not a regular show. We are in a very strange time, and we're all processing things differently. There's a lot of fear, a lot of nervousness, a lot of anxiety. So we needed to hear this story today. Dick Beardsley joins us, and yes, we will talk outdoors a little bit. But the reason I brought Dick in today, for those of you who don't know, he has an amazing story, a story of hope in dark times. I would have loved to have Dick in the studio. Obviously, right now, that's not possible. We did this via cell phone. It's not always perfect audio, but stay with it. You need to hear this. Thanks for joining us. Well, today on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors, uh, we need to hear something positive, so we are turning to one of the most positive people I know, uh, Dick Beersley. Dick, thanks for taking the time today. We really appreciate you uh, taking some time out to do this. Hey, thank you, Kev. It's always, always uh, nice being with you. I always enjoy it. Well, Dick, let's let's start with the outdoors. Uh, there probably isn't any place uh, than outdoor fishing and hunting, and uh, maybe a, a walk in the woods that uh, is good natural social distancing. Boy, that, isn't that the truth, Kev? But you know, this is a you know this is the time of year now too. You know, we've had some you know long days now. The snow is melting, and boy, everybody uh, has got some cabin fever. Wants to get out there and. And enjoy the great outdoors, and and definitely uh, we're so fortunate to live in the Bemidji area here, and we've got such you know beautiful scenery to look at, and we've got you know great areas to go out and hike and uh, fish and whatever you want to do, and um, it's a great way to get out, and and as long as you're doing your social distancing, um, you know the fresh air has got to be good for you. I would think it sure feels good to me, anyhow. <laughs> no doubt. Uh, and uh, have you been fishing lately? Well, I've been out on the ice, actually. There's, uh, you know, now up until last Friday, I was driving my three-quarter ton pickup truck um, all over the place. But uh, now I'm not driving out anymore, but um, we're actually, you know, walking out. And the problem getting to be now is in some, some areas, some lakes, that shoreline is starting to pull out a little bit, and the accesses are really, you know, pretty much done for the most part. Uh, just because of all the traffic over the, the last part of the winter here. and But there's still, you know, good ice. There's plenty of ice out on the main lake, but the problem is is trying to get out to it and, and whatnot. But um, on most lakes, you can still access them. And, and my um, way of travel now is kind of like it was uh, when we had all the snow and slushes is to be walking out, pulling your gear and whatnot. But, um, again, any time of the year, but especially early in the season, and now as we get uh, you know into the, the spring season, out there on that ice, you always got to be careful and know where you're going, and, and you know safety's got to come first. That's for sure. All right, is uh, have you seen any open water areas out there yet? Um, you know, I was I was actually before we got this um, this uh, you know stay at home kind of a thing from the governor. I was out in um, Chamberlain, South Dakota. I had a guide client out there from the cities that I take out quite a bit around here, and um, we went out to um, the Missouri River at Chamberlain for some open water walleye fishing, and uh, we did really good. It was, it was, Kevin, let me tell you, it was so much fun. 
having a seven-foot rod in my hand instead of a foot-and-a-half-long rod in my hand. <laughs> and uh, the one day we were out there, it, uh, I think it was Sunday, it was just gorgeous. You know, there was no wind. It was about 62 degrees, and the fish were biting, and that was a lot of fun. But on my way back home, I uh, I, I kind of came back the scenic route through southwestern Minnesota and then up kind of, you know, northeast up towards Bemidji, and uh, when I got to just just south of Wilmer, Minnesota, um, the lakes, once you got just south of Wilmer, then all the way north, the lakes were still froze up. And But from there south, the lakes were all wide open. So uh, I'm sure there's some people, you know, down around that Fairmont area where they've got a bunch of lakes and maybe that Mankato area that people are probably out there doing a little panfish now, I would imagine. Uh, yeah, I would assume that uh, that can happen now. So yeah, it doesn't you know it doesn't take long, and and of course there's been a a lot of folks fishing the Mississippi the Mississippi River and Pool Number Four down there near Red Wing for walleyes and fogger, and and uh, unfortunately nobody's going to be fishing the the Rainy River this spring, of course, because of all the accesses being closed. But um, that's not such a bad thing, I guess. You know, we'll we got plenty of time for open water and. And even though it's catch and release on the rainy, it uh, it'll be nice letting those walleyes just kind of do their spawning without anybody thunking them with a jig on the nose. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I would think one of the the issues we're going to find once once we get to open water season is you know with the the stay home orders and things of that nature. Um, the guys who get the uh, the boat accesses ready probably won't have a lot of them ready by the fishing opener. We, we may need to know people on the water to to get our boat out there. No, you're right, Kev. And and if they do, you know, it, it, a lot depends on what happens now in the next six weeks or so. But if this coronavirus epidemic uh, pandemic continues to, hopefully not, but if let's say it would would continue to get worse. Um, there may be a decision that, you know, the public accesses, like on the rainy, are going to be closed for a bit. And the only way you can get out there, you can, you'll still be able to fish. You just won't be able to launch your boat unless you know somebody that has a private access at their cabin or home or something like that. So hopefully it won't come to that. Um, but uh, I guess the only time will tell uh, what happens between now and the fishing opener on May 9th. You know, we really do need to get out and do the kinds of things we like to do. And again, the fishing and hunting thing is is in, you know something that naturally does give you that that separation by and large. Um, right. It's it's a weird weird time, uh, Dick. Uh, it's a strange time. I, I think we're all worried. And I know you you know you've got a bed and breakfast, a, a hospitality business, and as a fishing guide, a hospitality business. And it's it's uh, there's a lot of question marks. Oh, Kev, there there really is, and you know, excuse me. My wife Jill's kind of the the worrier of the family, and and um, you know, I kind of look at things like, well, you know, it, it's going to work out. It just might, you know, take a while, but it is. It it it, it has put us into a, a a difficult situation. You're right, you know, um, with no income coming in, and you know, I haven't had any cancellations on my um, guide business of of uh, guide trips that are already booked, but I'm not usually by about now. You start getting the end of March into April, the phone and the emails start coming in, and uh, people want to you know book a, a day or two of, of open water fishing. 
And as of right now, those are pretty much not coming in. And, and I can understand people, you know, they don't want to make arrangements and not have them happen. So um, it's a tough situation for, you know, for fishing guides, for people that own resorts, uh, hotels, motels, bed and breakfast, anything to do, you know, the restaurants, at least they're able to do the curbside and, and uh, carry out things like that. But, boy, it's put a strain on everybody, and, and, and we're worried about it, you know. Not just, you know, obviously for economic-wise, but, you know, just for people's health in general. And you just never know, you know, who's going to get this and how it's going to affect them. And uh, you start hearing about some younger people that have gotten it and have gotten real sick and some even, you know, passed on. And it's a it's a scary situation we're in. We just got to, um, you know, keep our distance from people. And um, I know we went into our bank to chat with our folks at the bank today. And, you know, I'm one that likes to give people a good hand, a handshake. And, you know, if I know I'm halfway decent, I usually give them a little bit of a hug. And it, it just felt weird, you know, just, hey, good morning, you know. And it's uh, it's just different time that we're going through through right now. But um, the one thing is that uh, it's affecting everybody. You know, it doesn't matter who you are, um, you know, how much money you make, what you do. Uh, everybody's affected by it. We just kind of got to do our best and keep our chins up and try to get through this the best we can. Dick, one of the reasons I wanted to bring you on, is, and we talked about this yesterday, is I, I've heard your your story twice. Some people haven't heard it at all. And I just felt um, the story you have told over the years, I think, is something a lot of people need to hear right now. A lot of people don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. A lot of people are really, really scared. And you, I, I wanted you to, to show your situation, to show that, you know, you don't live in a fantasy world. You're living the real-life thing, too. But you have a perspective a lot of people don't have uh, through, through some of the turmoil and troubles you've been through in your life. And, and I appreciate, first of all, you being willing to share it with our audience today. Thank you for that before we go forward. Oh, you're very welcome, Kev. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I can, I can do that. I really am, and I appreciate Let me, uh, you know, to share whatever you'd like me to share and um, you know, we all go through difficult times in our lives and, and, um, you know, it's a lot of times we're, we're able to look back and, and, you know, it, we make it through something like that and it enables us to make it through another tough situations in our life. So yeah, thank you for letting me share. Well, first of all, Dick, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, I find that interesting as you, as you grew up, you were into fishing and hunting and then eventually found running. And and really had a had quite a uh, a successful running career. Let's just pick it up when you're young and, and take us through that uh, that portion of your life. Yeah, you bet, Kev. Yeah, you know, growing up, I uh, my dad started taking me fishing when I was well, about two, maybe even a little bit younger, to be honest with you. And uh, he was an avid outdoorsman, especially for fishing. And I just I fell in love with the sport, and um, I just absolutely loved it. I remember my dad always telling me. You know, when I got older, he says, you know, he always called me D. He goes, you know, D, when you were a kid, we'd go out fishing, and, you know, we'd, you'd be a little tired, and we'd throw a cushion up in the front of the old aluminum boat, and, and you'd take a little nap, and then you'd be right back up fishing again. He said, you never complained, no matter what the weather was, no matter if we were catching fish or not. And, um, you know, my dad would always thank me for that. It seems like every time we went fishing, as, as I got to be an adult, and, you know, and he lived quite a ways away at the time. and But I just really fell in love with the sport. I spent a lot of time here in the Bemidji area as a kid. 
Um, a good friend of my dad's was Bernie Backman, and Bernie was a wonderful human being on top of, you know, a wonderful fishing and hunting guide. And I spent a lot of time with Bernie, like on, like during Christmas vacation and, and other times of the year. I, I would stay right at, at Bernie and his wife, his wife Rosalind's house and their kids. And um, I'd go out with Bernie and his trap lines and go fishing with them. And, and you know, in the open water season, I fished with Bernie and, and my dad a lot, and and I uh, he just was he was a mentor for me, and I, I he's been gone now for quite some time, but I, I, I in fact I'm looking at a picture of him I got of him up on a wall holding a, a stringer of walleyes right now, but um, so I you know and, and he really showed me the ropes about being a fishing guide, and and I started doing that when I was about I don't know 12 13 years old, and and uh, you know I'm 64 now, and I still love doing it, but. In between that time, I um, I was and I was big into hunting and trapping and things like that, anything to do with the outdoors. And but at about 17 years old, I was I was in high school. I was a junior in high school, and and girls um, kind of started catching my eye a little bit, you know, more than like a dead raccoon laying alongside the road. And, and I was such a shy, believe it or not, I was just a shy, bashful kid, and. I couldn't even say hi to a girl, let alone actually ask one out on a date. So, but I noticed a lot of my buddies that were good in, uh, you know, sports would be wearing their high school letter jackets around, and and uh, they always had girls hanging all over them. So, you know, my first thought was, okay, all I got to do is earn myself a letter jacket, and I went out for the football team. And for those folks who who don't know my build, I'm about six foot tall, weighing about 135 pounds, and. And uh, that first day of football practice, I got squashed like a pop can. And, and I remember getting up out of that pile of guys that, that hog tackled me. And, and um, my, you know, my helmet was on crooked. My shoulder pads were sticking out. My football pants were down to my ankles. And I'm thinking, there's not a girl alive that is worth going through this. <laughs> and, uh, and I quit. I quit. I actually walked off the field. Kept my entire football career from start to finish, lasted about 43 and a half minutes. <laughs> you know, and at that time, I was devastated. I really was. You know, my self-esteem, you know, wasn't very high at that point. And, but like, I, I, like I've said this to myself and to a lot of other people, you know, a lot of times what we perceive as incredible disappointments in our lives can sometimes turn out to be great blessings. And, and that's what it was for me. You know, a few days later, I, I, I went out for the cross-country running team, and I'll never forget our coach, you know, saying, okay, boys, we're going to do the around-the-block run today. Now, Kev, I never ran at all. A little bit gym class playing dodgeball or something like that, but never gone out just for a run. But I'm thinking, well, surely I'm stubborn enough and I'm committed enough and determined enough that I can, you know, run around the block and stay with my teammates and so anyhow listen to make a long story short what they called their around the block run was actually 3.2 miles long now that doesn't seem very far to me today but back then it it seemed like forever and believe it or not i i had to walk the last mile and in fact by the time i got back to my high school all my teammates and my coach had already showered and gone home (laughs) When I when I crossed that imaginary finish line into our high school parking lot, I was so excited. I remember thinking, "Gosh, Dick, I don't know how far you just ran and walked, but you made it." And and you know, I just thought to myself, "If you work real hard and 
do what your coach tells you to do and, and believe in yourself and have faith. You know, I'll just bet you, Dick, you can get good enough to make the varsity squad to earn the letter jacket to get the date with the girl. That was my whole inspiration <laughs> for running at the time, to get the date with a girl. And, and I did everything my coach told me to do, Kev. I, you know, showed up on time for practice and, and uh, never complained about the workouts, even ran on the weekends. But, you know, I was terrible. And so I was regulated to the JV team. But, of course, you don't earn a letter jacket on the JV squad. And so when the season ended, I didn't run another step. And, and then that summer, when I got down with my junior year of high school, I, I'd set a goal for myself way before that was to run every single day that summer. And I didn't miss a day. I didn't run real far or very fast. But I ran every single day, and I came back for my senior year, and, and we did that same around-the-block run. And this time, though, instead of all my teammates finishing in front of me, they all finished behind me. Now, that, that's not saying a whole lot because we didn't have a very good team, but it, it really showed me that if you're willing to do the work and really have a purpose and a determination, no matter what it is you do, don't let anybody – especially yourself, ever keep you from pursuing those goals. And, and now saying all that, I, I did earn my letter jacket. I did get a date with a girl then. You know, however, that's about as far as it went. I am honored to have Dick Beardsley share his story today on Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. We'll pick it up in his college years next. Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors is sponsored by DS Beverages, by Bonded Lock and Key, and Northern Surplus Northern Outdoors. Dick Beersley, my guest today, I have heard this story a number of times. It always moves me. And it seemed like this was a good time to share this with anybody who has not heard it. We pick it up with Dick headed to college. You know, I, I still wasn't a very good runner. When I never qualified for the state meet here in Minnesota and cross country. And then I did run track also my senior year. But, you know, the seed had been planted and I'd fallen in love with this wonderful sport of running and you know a lot of people Kev they think that you know when they look at my running resume or see some videos of some of the big races I've run in way back in my younger days that a lot of people think oh man I probably got a full ride scholarship you know University of Minnesota went on to the Olympics and so forth and and um, well there was no scholarship and I did go to the University of Minnesota just not the one that most people think of I (laughs) went to the University of Minnesota at Waseca in Waseca, Minnesota, which is now a federal prison, so it kind of tells you <laughs> where I got my degree from. But you know, Ken, I tell you, I had a coach there, uh, Coach John Folkrod, and I, I still keep in touch with Coach, and he's been retired now for a long time. He's in his upper 70s, I believe, close to 80 now. But, you know, especially this time that we're facing right now, all of us, you know, it's a, the things we say to each other, you never know how it's going to affect a person at that moment or tomorrow or next week or months down the, or years down the road. But one day, Coach Folkride, after practice, he put his arm around my shoulders and we're walking back into the gym, and he goes, you know, Dick, I really believe you can become as good of a runner as you want to be, and I never, ever forgot that. But honestly, Kim, you know, never in my wildest dreams when I graduated from high school in May of 1975 did I ever think that my running would, would take off and, uh, and go like it did. So I was 
very, very blessed, that's for sure. How did it uh, evolve into that next level? Well, so, you know, I went to the University of Minnesota, Wasika, and then I, I was fortunate to really start improving in college. And I think one of the reasons was, first I had a few more years underneath my belt of basically continuous running, but in college, you know, I could run up to 10,000 meters, so 6.2 miles, and it seemed like the further I ran, the better I was. And so then, because I improved quite a bit, I got a partial scholarship to run for out at South Dakota State University out in Brookings, South Dakota. And I, I ran out there in the fall of 1978. And our team, we were runner-up national uh, champions in um, cross-country in the NCAA Division Two. And then from there, when I got out of college, I uh, continued to run and um, started using some some things I'd learned from you know my high school coach and my college coaches. And then I picked up a book from uh, a guy named Ron Dawes. Ron was a Minnesota guy, and he, he made the 1968 Olympic team. And I read his book. He, he, I felt like he was a lot like me. He didn't have a lot of talent, but he worked really, really hard at it. And I read his book, and he had lots of his workouts in there. So I started putting together some of his workouts, and, and my running just it started to improve. And, and, uh, and then I got, I got hooked up with the New Balance Shoe Company. I, uh, you know, I, I took a time there at about the age of 21, 22. I wanted to see how good of a runner I could become. So I kind of put everything on the back burner. I was still guiding a little bit, but really I was, I was putting all my effort into training. And I, I moved to the cities and rented a little one-bedroom apartment, and, and I was training at least twice a day, sometimes three times a day. But it was, it was difficult just coming up with rent every month. And I remember, you know, I, I can still recall looking under the cushions and the couch for extra nickels, dimes, and quarters to put a extra loaf of bread in the pantry or an extra gallon of milk into the fridge and uh my one pair of running shoes that i owned honest to gosh kev i i had i had had them taped up with some kind of like a duct tape just to hold them together because they were so worn out but i didn't have a dime to buy any shoes so you know long story short i, I stuck into a big uh, trade show they were having for um shoe companies like you know new balance adidas nike places like that and i got kicked out three times before I finally snuck my way in there. And finally, I got hooked up. Uh, everybody, you know, when I handed them my little one-page resume that was triple space, so it would fill a whole page about my running, a little minor accomplishments I had had, uh, everybody pretty much at these different shoe companies kind of laughed at me, but except one, and that was a New Balance shoe company. And I left the, the, the um, expo that day with a, a free pair of New Balance shoes under my arm, and and it just it it was unbelievable, and, and just that um, somebody else believing in what I was trying to do, my my running went to another level almost immediately, and then um, eventually I got you know I, I I signed a deal with the New Balance shoe company, and and now this this past November. You know, I've been with the New Balance Shoe Company for 40 years now, and believe me, it's not because of my running anymore. I'm slower <laughs> than the last of in January. And like like I tell people, Kev, 
I'm kind of like the Walmart greeter for New Balance. You know, they'll, they'll send me out to a, a running specialty store somewhere around the country, and I'll do a little meet and greet, maybe sign some posters and, and go out for a fun run with people. But um, so that really enabled me to continue to run. And then I got hooked up with Coach Bill Squires, who coached people like Bill Rogers, the four-time winner of the Boston Marathon, Alberto Salazar, you know, the world record holder at one time in the marathon, and many other top runners. And, and, and Coach Squires took me under his wing. He was in Boston. I was back home here in Minnesota. And he'd send me my, my workouts once a week in the back of a beer-stained napkin from the Elliott Lounge where all the runners in Boston hung out. And, and he really, he took me to a level, Kev, that I, I never, ever thought I could attain. And, you know, I was fortunate to, you know, I was, won the first London Marathon 40 years ago, and I won it with another guy uh, named Inga Simonson. We tied, actually, and he was from Oslo, Norway, and in the, that was 40 years ago, and we'd become great friends, and the neat thing about that is my grandma came over to the United States from Norway, and so I got a lot of Norwegian in me, and, and um, so, and then, you know, I was fortunate to to win my first grandma's marathon in 1981, and and, uh, you know, I came within, I think, about nine seconds of the American record at the time and ran 209 there. And, and it just kind of took off. And then, of course, the race, that, if, if you're a runner at all, that most people remember the most is, is a race I didn't even win. It was the 1982 Boston Marathon where Salazar, who was at that time was the world record holder, and on a real hot day, him and I, I mean, we duped it out right to the very end and, and uh, he ended up beating me, you know, by 1.6 seconds. He ran 208.51, and I ran 208.52.6. So, um, you know, I've been very fortunate, Kev. My, my running took me places that I'd only dreamed about or, or read about in magazines. And, you know, I got to go uh, travel around the world to compete. And, and unfortunately, I uh, about nine months before the Olympics in 1984, which were held in Los Angeles, you know, I blew up my left Achilles tendon. And the Olympic orthopedic surgeon for the U.S. rebuilt it. Um, but then I, I didn't have the time to really let it heal like I should have. And I, I was back training way too soon. And I was running a race out, out in California. And I snapped it again. And, and then it was, you know, two years of no running at all. And But, you know, you know I, I've been very fortunate, you know, that, when I started running, I wasn't very good, but I fell in love with it, and I had a passion for it, and I still have a passion for it. And uh, I still run every day, although, you know, I don't train anymore. I just go out and run. For me, it's that, that hour at 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm out there all by myself, and definitely social distancing at that time of the day. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, but, Kev, it's, it's my hour where it's just me. I don't have anybody you know, pulling me this direction or that direction. And that hour I have with just me and the good Lord is, uh, <clears throat> and I, I get choked up thinking about it. So I'm mm. very fortunate I can still get out there and still put one foot in front of the other, no matter how slow. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dick, it was a, it was an incredible uh, uh, stretch of time for you, certainly. Uh, and then uh, after your active running career, uh, some, some uh, y- y- you had some tough times. I did. You know, I, uh, I, I I finally got back um, after two years of no running in the mid-'80s 
uh, to where I could get back and run again. And I qualified for the 1988 Olympic marathon trials and ran those out in, uh, in, uh, in New Jersey, just outside of New York City. I didn't have a very good race that day in 1988, but when I got down, you know, I had a smile on my face and knew that I'd given running my best. Now, at the time, I had just turned 32, and uh, for me, it was time to move on and and, uh, and and put that real competitive running behind me. You know, nowadays, that's just, you're kind of just, you know, not even reaching your peak yet. But back then, that was kind of considered getting kind of old, so, you know, we, we moved back uh I had a dairy farm, and I was, you know, milking cows. I was doing my fishing guide business, and, and life was, I mean, I was living the life I always wanted to live. And, and then on November 13th, though, 1989, I um, I got in a in a really bad farming accident. I, I got in a little, I guess, a little bit of a hurry, and I got, I got caught in a power takeoff. And for people that don't know what that is, it's a long steel shaft round shaft that hooks to the back of the tractor and then the other end hooks to another piece of farm equipment and when you turn it on it it rotates spins at about 600 revolutions a minute well i turned that thing on and and i turned to go do something and when i turned honestly gosh kev i thought somebody had come up from behind me grabbed me by my shoulder blades and body slamming into the um into the ground and Anyhow, next thing I know, my left leg was being wrapped around that spinning shaft like a piece of string wrapping around your finger, and then started taking my whole body around. And I could feel myself, you know, as it would smack my head into the frozen ground each time it would whip me around, losing consciousness. And it was from the grace of God that somehow I was able to, I don't remember it completely, but I don't know if I hit the lever or was able to grab it enough to get it where it got turned off but it got turned off but i was in rough shape and I, you know i'd um i'd broken i well i had all kinds of head contusions i'd broken all the ribs on my right side punctured my right lung broke my right arm had a piece of steel driven into the upper part of my chest which i don't know where that came from and then my left leg was um almost torn off and but i you know i, I had great doctors and and nurses and surgeons and physical therapists and nutritionists and, and a will to, you know, to want to get better and the good Lord, they're helping me along. And I, and I survived it and even got back to running again and doing my guide business and even still milking cows for a little bit. And, and then, you know, life was pretty much back to normal for the next, you know, two and a half years or so. And, and then uh, in the, summer of 1992 that was the farm accident was in november of 1989 the summer of 1992 then i i got in a bad really bad car accident a a lady ran a stop sign on a country road and t-boned my car and totaled out my car and i busted up my back and and i uh, was in the hospital for i don't know a few more weeks and had major spinal surgery and and but again, once again, I you know I recovered from that and got back to kind of normalcy again. And and then it was probably that following winter, I was running down a street in Fargo, North Dakota. I shouldn't have been. It was it was almost like a blizzard out. And for a block, I had to get off the sidewalk because it was so full of snow. So I jumped out onto 
a one-way street with running with the traffic, which is a no-no. And anyhow, long story short, there I got hit by from behind by a truck, and they found me laying in a snowbank. And so I was back in the hospital, more surgeries, and and um, but again, I, you know, I was fortunate. I survived and got back to normal. And and then the, the following spring, you know, I was hiking at uh, Lake Bemidji State Park there, and that was before a lot of the, any of the trails were really, uh, you know, nice like they are now. And, you know, I was down at the bottom of the lake going up that real steep, it's almost like a real steep bank going up, and, and it had been raining for a few days. And I got to almost the top, and I took one more step to the side of this small little narrow trail, and this big chunk of ground broke away, and I ended up falling literally like off a cliff and landing down on the shores of Lake Bemidji. Yeah, I was in the hospital here in Bemidji for, I don't know, 10 days or so again. And anyhow, so I've had more surgeries and and been put back together and got two, you know, a couple knee replacements and I've got rods and and screws in my back. You know, it, um, you know, things happen in life and and honest to gosh, you know, I remember people telling me they, they would say, my gosh, if you didn't have bad luck, you wouldn't have any luck at all. And and uh, I honestly, I never, ever looked at it like that. I really didn't. I, I'm one of these people that believe things happen for a reason. And there was a reason why these things happen. And, and um, <clears throat> there was a reason why I was still alive. But, but through it all... Um, you know, I was on a lot of narcotic pain medication for a long time, and um, I ended up becoming addicted to the narcotic pain killers, and um, it made these other things seem like a walk in the park, and it got to the point where um, the addiction, you know, led to where I was doctor shopping. Now, this was back, you know, this was back in the early 90s, and, you know, there were the prescriptions and stuff weren't computerized. You know, a doctor would just give you a piece of paper with a signature. And, and um, so I'd go, you know, when one doctor would quit giving me the painkillers, I'd go to another doctor and another doctor. And then when I couldn't find any more doctors, you know, I started doing something I can't even imagine. Thinking about doing little and actually do. And I started forging, you know, my own prescriptions and, and, um, you know, I had never been in any trouble in my life and, and never, um, you know, I'd never stolen as a kid even a piece of bubble gum. And here I'm doing something that, you know, I, I knew I could go to prison. I, I, I knew I could lose everything I'd ever worked for in my life. But all that mattered at that point was to, to get the pills and take the pills and make sure I didn't get caught. And by uh, the summer of 1996 i was taking upwards of 80 you know narcotic painkillers a day and um the fact that i didn't die is an absolute miracle but thankfully on september 30th of 1996 i i got caught and um it was such a relief and but i knew i was in a lot of trouble but i was so blessed and i was so thankful that I was still alive, and I knew the only chance I had, if there was any chance at all to get better, was to be 100% truthful and take responsibility for my actions. 
and that's what I did. And, and you know, I, I was interviewed by two federal drug enforcement agents that day. I got caught because I was writing so many prescriptions. They thought I was, you know, dealing the drugs. And, and when they told me that, I was blubbering so hard I could hardly breathe. I, like I told them, I said, you know, not one pill that I give, sell to anybody. I, I was too selfish. If I got them, I took them. And, and um, luckily, I was I was given five years of probation and 460 hours of community service. And I got right into a, 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 a treatment program, first in the hospital. And they put me on methadone. And um, I got addicted to the methadone. And methadone is it's a nasty drug. It's a narcotic. And it, it's what they put heroin addicts on to keep them off the heroin and and to get off of the methadone it's it's difficult and and finally i i i couldn't get off of it the withdrawals were so bad and finally they, they sent me down to the university of minnesota hospital and i remember laying in my bed the first night i got there and i was in such pain from the withdrawals my bones and my arms and legs ached so bad that I honestly believe if I would have had access to a saw, I honestly think I would have sawed off my own arms and legs. It would have had to feel better. And, and in the mornings, it was it was um, just to get my legs on the outside of the bed and put on a clean pair of pants. Um, it seemed like it took me forever. But, you know, I never missed a meeting with my group to try to learn how to get better. And there were some mornings, Kev, I, w- I was so sick from the withdrawals, I had to crawl on my hands and my knees <clears throat> like a dog down the hallway to get to my group meeting. And I'll never forget one morning, I'm, I'm actually crawling like a dog down the hallway trying to get down to my group meeting because I was so sick I couldn't stand up to walk down. And I blacked out, and, and when I came to, I remember laying in my own vomit. And I remember looking up and saying, God, please, God, either just take me right now or please God help get me better. And that night I actually slept for the first time in over a week for just a little bit. And then the next day I slept a little bit more and a little bit more. And and after I'd been there for about three weeks, I started to feel what it was like to be me, Dick Beardsley, without those drugs in my body. And it, I liked how it made me feel. And, and, um, the last, what, a little over 23 years I've had a sobriety from those narcotic painkillers that have been um, the best, you know, some of the best 23-plus years I've ever had. And, you know, so i got to tell you, so to go back a little bit, so after that Boston Marathon in 1982, 38 years ago, I remember after I recovered from that, and and got back to you know feeling myself again because that race beat me up so bad i'm thinking well the good thing about being beat up like i was in that race is i know i'll never have to go through anything more difficult in my life again and i was 25 26 years old at the time and i really believed that well then when i you know i had the farming accident and all those other accidents and all the surgeries well once i recovered from all of that i remember thinking well the good thing about all that is at least I know for sure now I'm never, ever, ever going to have to go through anything more difficult. And I really believed that. But then, again, I was wrong. And after I had, 
I don't know, probably three or four years of sobriety from the painkillers. I remember one day thinking, boy, I would never, ever want to go through this or put my family through that addiction of mine that I had. But the one good thing that has really come from this is I know absolutely, unequivocally, I will never, ever... go through anything more difficult. And I firmly believed that I would have bet my life on it. But I was wrong again. My son Andy, we adopted Andy when he was a little baby from Honduras. And um, he was my little fishing buddy, and and, uh, we did lots of things together. And he was just um, our pride and joy. And when he turned 21, he joined the United States Army. And uh, it was such an honor for him to serve our country. And I was, I'd never been so proud of anybody in my life. Andy kind of lost a little direction when he got out of high school, but when he got into the Army, it did something to him in a very positive way. And and, and I was so proud of him. And, and he really was, it was an honor for him to serve our country. And then, like a lot of soldiers back then, and he got uh, deployed to Iraq, and he was a gunner on Black Hawk helicopters. And um, and then when he wasn't doing that, he was in charge of a crew that when the choppers would come in from the field with the wounded soldiers, they would get those wounded soldiers off. They'd do a quick mechanical check and a refuel of the choppers and get them back up in the air. So... He saw a lot of things, had to do a lot of things that weren't real pleasant. But um, after about a year and a half in Iraq, he he got home. Um, But he suffered from he suffered from post traumatic stress disorder. And um, four years ago, this past October, just outside of Detroit Lakes, where Andy grew up, my son Andy took his life, and. I was um, absolutely devastated. And um, when I was told, I had just gotten back from a guide trip. And when I walked in the house, there was a police officer there and a social worker. And they told me what had happened. And I literally fell off my chair. And um, I was, uh, I, I, I thought I was having the worst nightmare I've ever, ever had, but Obviously, it wasn't a nightmare, and and I look back on that, and um, I miss my my little boy. Every waking moment, you know, and he was thirty one at the time, but no matter how old he was, he was always my little boy. And and um, but you know, one thing that brings me hope, and believe it or not, brings me joy, and leaves me with peace is is knowing that all those bad nightmares and the darkness and all that that really got to Andy, that that's all gone. And and, um, and knowing that someday I'll be able to put my arms around and someday I'll... Sorry. That someday I'll be able to put my arms around Andy again and give him a big hug. Um, leaves me with peace. So... Um, you know, and in this time of 
that we're going through now here in Minnesota, across our country, across the world, with this pandemic that's going on and this cor- coronavirus, I know it's it's difficult on people. It's difficult on my wife Jill and I, and but I know that it will get better, and you got to believe that that it will get better, and and hopefully people will stick to the guidelines and the rules that they're having to try to you know do, and and hopefully this will be behind us, you know, sooner than later, and we can all get back on with our lives, and hopefully none of us will get real sick and, and lose any loved ones or people we know, and, and um, you know, hopefully something good can come from this. And, and usually, if you look hard enough, at least for me, I, sometimes you got to squint your eyes to see light at that end of the tunnel, but hopefully we'll be able to look back and 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 take a little bit of good from this and i'm already seeing it a little bit you know even though you know many of us are pent up in our own little home environments or we're able to go out and walk but what it's done is it's brought in families a lot closer together you know because now we got to spend all of our time with the people we love and and um and and we, we we get to do things together again and a lot of people have that time to do it and and i think once we get over all of this that's happening right now, I think that'll be the glue that binds families together um, in a way that maybe without this pandemic, it never could have. So hopefully something good will come from this and we'll all be able to get on with our lives and and um, we'll be back to normal for a, uh, normalcy uh, sooner than later. Dick, I, uh, I've heard this story a few times now, and I've been brought to tears a few times now, um, and I'm really honored, and I thank you for doing this, because we needed to hear this today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome, Kevin, and, um, you know, um, I just want to leave the listeners with this, and thank you for letting me share. You know, a lot of people don't like to talk about bad things in their lives but uh, for me I can't imagine keeping it all pent up and if, if something I say helps somebody else maybe through a difficult situation then I'm glad I'm able to you know partake and I sure appreciate your time and effort to let me do this but in leaving I'd like to leave the listeners with one last thing that um, that I try to do every single day And it, it's always helped me through difficult time in my life, difficult times in my life. And, and the four things I try to do every day, anybody can do them, and they're quite simple. And these four things are this. When I wake in the morning, I try to wake up with a smile on my face, enthusiasm in my voice, joy in my heart, and faith in my soul. And those four things have gotten me through a lot of difficult times, and hopefully they'll get our listeners through those too. So, again, Kev, thank you so much. I can't, you know, you and this radio station do so much for our community, and um, thank you so very, very much for what you all do. I really appreciate it. The man I am very proud to say is my friend, Dick Beardsley, joining me today on uh, Paul Bunyan Country Outdoors. And, Dick, again, thank you, and I look forward to talking, fishing, and other outdoor activities with you, uh, hopefully real soon. 
Hey, thanks, Kev. Have a great day.